This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Even the biggest tax hikes will not raise enough money to pay off the national debt or meet coming obligations to retiring baby boomers for Medicare and Social Security. To accomplish that, politicians must do something they fear even more than raising taxes, reduce Medicare and Social Security benefits. Assuming China continues to invest in our treasury bonds, when do we have to start backfilling the deep debt hole that we've dug for ourselves, not even counting the much bigger shortfall for Medicare and Social Security that's heading our way? Obviously, they're very nervous right now, and hence why they've thought about um, floating a, an international reserve that's no longer U.S.-based. But even given the assumption that under the safe haven hypothesis, the U.S. debt is still viewed as the safe uh, place to go, and um, and we continue to get uh, the ability to, to float debt at these very um, low rates, which is just an, almost a topic unto itself because these rates are so unbelievable, um, unbelievably low. But <clears throat> We really face a very, you know, significant, even short-term problem, and the reason why is because all this debt's going to crowd out lots of private investment, and um, it's, it assumes that the government can do a better job at picking kind of winners and in investments. And economists don't have, we don't have a hard and fast rule that says here's your maximum kind of debt ceiling, here's the the most that you can go, but given um, where we are in terms of paper debt, which is um, we're adding another $2.1 trillion just this coming fiscal year. And we're going to be close to $11, $12 trillion in total paper debt. Then on top of that, the topic you're going to get to, all the other liabilities and Social Security and Medicare, you know, we, we really do face a very dire situation right now. The U.S. economy has never faced this type of challenge in the past. Even during the World War II, when our paper debt was high, we just never faced the type of fiscal challenges that we face right now. Do we have to dig ourselves out of the national debt before we can address Social Security and Medicare? No. In fact, ideally, it would be, in some ways, just the opposite, because Social Security and Medicare are much bigger problems, and the longer that we delay those, um, the more those problems kind of snowball. And in particular, every year that we delay reform on either of those programs, um, it adds about another $2 trillion to the um, to the to the present value shortfalls of both programs. So just the one-year cost of delay is about the size of the um, this record deficit that we're going to have this year on the on the on the unbudget the the more paper-based accounts. And that and whatever reform we do for Social Security, the bottom line financially is that it has to cost a lot less than it does now. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly raise some tax revenue um, some places. People have talked about increasing the um, max taxable wage cap. That is, um, the Social Security um, tax is only levied um, up to close to $100,000 and maybe increasing that. That's not going to actually 
help a lot in present value because those people eventually collect more benefits and they're not going to collect as much benefits as they paid in the system, but it's still not going to be super effective. And you can do, you know, other things. People have talked about taxing fringe benefits like healthcare and so forth. But the fact of the matter is these benefits are growing faster than inflation when we have to bring Social Security benefit growth rate closer to inflation for it to be a sustainable system. And that's the easy problem. Medicare is the tough one. And Medicare is tougher. Why? Because of people, their general reluctance to give up benefits that have to do with their, their, their health care? Medicare is tough for two reasons. One, the shortfalls in Medicare is 67 times larger than in Social Security. I mean, it's really, um, you know, Social Security is a major problem. Medicare is a crisis. Uh, you, you add both of those numbers, shortfalls together, you're getting something that's, um, you know, between 80 and $100 trillion in total present value shortfall. So just to put that number in context, it, it's just a hard number that people can't even imagine how big that number is. If you took the total value of the United States except for the people, so I mean all the land, houses, buildings, everything sitting on that land that's non-perishable, your, uh, your washer and dryer, cars, so forth, it has about a value of about $50 trillion. And so we're talking about a shortfall uh, a twice the value of the value of the U.S. except for the people. Now the value of the people is about three times that, and so. Um, but still, we're talking about just biblically large <laughs> shortfalls. We've never seen this type of problem, and the problem with and most of that, eighty percent of that is, is really driven by Medicare, and so it's a very large shortfall. And also Medicare, just how the benefit is done, it's not given as a dollar benefit, it's an in-kind benefit. That is, they pay for operations. And so how do you scale that back? A dollar benefit like Social Security is easier to scale back. An operation, what do you, what do, you do there? You, you say, okay, we'll pay for half of it, and you pay for the other half of it. You know, people have talked about this. But more likely what it's going to do is um, lead to some type of system of rationing, unless we take kind of a long-run approach and actually get people to save up for their future mm -hmm. medical costs. The health care reform, uh, we don't actually have a health care reform proposal at this point, right. although the administration has proposed spending uh, 600 and something million dollar, billion dollars to begin addressing um, the, uh, the health care issues. Um, is, that, is, is reforming health care overall for all Americans the way to go in terms of addressing the issues with Medicare? It will address some of it. I mean, it, we don't have a health care proposal, like you said, yet. And it's somewhat interestingly, the Obama team is starting to lean more toward the Clinton proposal during the campaign of kind of mandatory coverage and so forth. There's nothing, as, as I've seen so far, however, that will fundamentally address the, the core issue, and that is um, medical care costs are simply going up. And um, increasing access is great for various social reasons, but it's not going to have a big impact on increasing uh, on the increasing costs unless 
we actually start making some hard choices. And some of those hard choices is going to be one that's going to be very unpopular, and that's actually you start to ration care. You basically say, you know, hit a certain age, we're no longer going to do those triple bypasses or something like that. And that's obviously a tough choice. I'd hope we don't get to that, obviously. But the second approach is more of a long-term approach where you got to make people sensitive to how much they care, uh, how much they spend on health care. That's the core problem, is that people always want the very best, even if the marginal benefit is much less than, and than the marginal cost, because they don't bear the cost. On the Medicare, the government bears the cost. And so people don't have any type of trade-off between spending and benefits, and they always want the, the very best, and that incents the um, innovators to always come up with the better pill, even though its efficacy may be just marginally better than the, uh, than the, than the um, generic drug, or the better operation, even though its efficacy will be just marginally better than the, the cheaper operation. Is there a way to force these innovators to be more cognizant of efficacy? In, in, in releasing their new products and their new techniques and their new medicines. Right. There's, there's only really two things you can do. The first is you basically say, well, people still aren't sensitized anymore to costs and benefits. We'll keep on paying for it. And in that case, the government then has to say, you know what, we'll keep on paying, but for only some stuff. And now the government is the one in charge of deciding who gets what. The second approach is to actually make people directly sensitized to it, and how you do that, things like health savings accounts, where you actually have them pre-fund some of their future medical care, such that they have to pay out the first um, several dollars of that care, and the government's only a backstop on a catastrophic type side. So and th- things like so those are the two choices. The problem with the health savings accounts, people say, well, there's an equitable issue. Some people can't accumulate a large savings account. And so then how do you kind of address um, that issue? And, and whatever you do to address that issue, again, delinks people from being sensitized to benefits and costs. Mm-hmm. And so it, there's, no, there's no silver, silver bullet here. I mean, and I think ultimately it will be the best package is some type of hybrid where you have people being sensitized to healthcare costs for normal type routines, for catastrophic type things. You probably have a government backstop, but more minimal backstop that's not always paying for the best looking you know, device that's out there. And it's mm-hmm. um, really taking into account cost benefits. Medicare, by the way, will claim that they take cost and benefit into account, but they, in, in effect, do not. They basically will approve almost anything that has some type of marginal benefit and not really think very hard about the cost. Okay. How does the government go about preparing people for this? No, given, given the psychology that you just discussed, wh- how does the government go about preparing people for that future? It's a interesting question because elected officials really have no incentive to do that. The, the chance of them being around 20, 30 years or even 10 years is pretty low, so they have incentive to always keep things going along. I mean, history has shown that it takes a crisis before you get some type of reform, and obviously that reform is never kind of the first best mm-hmm. reform. So, you know, we could talk about what things the government will do, but we know the government won't. I think it's going to require a lot more action by kind of citizen groups. You know, Pete Peterson, for example, mm-hmm. he created this large foundation to try to educate people. 
about some of the problems. And it, certainly there are some more blue dog Democrats and some Republicans who, you know, want to talk about this issue. But for the most part, you know, um, this, is a, this is an issue that you lose in terms of reelection. And so trying to um, have a, a sustainable, reasonable t- conversation is difficult. And it's only becoming more difficult as the baby boomers start to age even more and they become even more sensitive to this issue. So then what does the what does the um, result of the crisis, when, when the crisis arrives, what does it look like in terms of, of taxes? If we have to raise taxes to some extent, and uh, along with cutting back benefits, yeah. what, is, what does the tax bill look like for Americans? Well, we present, currently have a present value shortfall. That's twice the value of in the, the entire country, except for the human beings. And so, obviously, we can't tax our way out. So the real issue is what type of hit are we going to do to benefits? And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see uh, benefits reduced, especially for higher income earners. We we already got a hint of that in the Medicare Part D, the newest part of Medicare that gave us a prescription drug bill. They actually explicitly have some means testing in there, which actually basically says higher income people can get, get a, a smaller benefit. And in terms of the... Um, Social Security benefits. Social Security benefits are now taxed. In fact, they've been taxed since 1983. But it's taxed on a progressive basis. Higher income workers get more of their benefits um, taxed. I think you'll start to see a lot more of that. And so what will happen is Medicare and Social Security will become more of a flat system, kind of uh, less, uh, fewer benefits to higher income people, even though they paid in more. Mm-hmm. Um, but... On the, on the tax side, I, I don't see, you know, a lot of room for continuously increasing taxes, but we'll see, I think, more taxes on higher income individuals, and that will have long-run implications because, you know, they're also the ones who create jobs and invest and innovate and things like that. Um, we already have the second-highest corporate income tax rate in the world, even after you net in things like expensing and so forth. So, it, you know, for us to remain competitive, I, I just don't see how, that we can really do a lot on the tax side. I, but I do think we will see taxes um, go up. I, the thing I fear the most, and I think is the most likely outcome, is that the government will print a lot of debt to pay off a lot of these shortfalls. And then the international markets, in particular the fixed income markets, will will figure it out. And they will realize the government is basically monetizing that debt through through higher inflation. And if you have, you know, inflation rate that's two, three percent more per year than in the historic average, you can really eat away a lot of debt just through the law of compounding. Mm-hmm. And so the 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 market should figure that out and adjust interest rates accordingly. That's one reason why I believe that 30-year yields right now in treasuries, especially the non-inflation-protected treasuries, is, is, is really too low. I, be, that's, I, I believe treasuries are in a, in a bubble right now because everybody's flocked to this safety, and there's just no way that those low yields of 3.5% is going to cover the inflation rate over the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why doesn't the uh, rate respond to the reality of, of, of what's going on in the market? It, in theory, it, it should. Mm-hmm. 
I think what you have is a flight to safety going on right now where people are basically saying, where else do I hold my money? I'm, I'm nervous about the markets. I'm worried about, it's obviously people are worried about even corporate fixed income, and given the very high yield that those are earning right now. So people are panicked, and so they're moving toward what's viewed as historically safe, and that's U.S. Treasuries. The ir- irony is that when you have a whole herd of people moving into one security because they're scared, <laughs> that actually creates the problem for those people because you know prices of those securities get bid up, the yield's down, mm-hmm. and I think you're going to have a lot of people holding um, long-duration f- fixed-income government um, securities, you're going to see uh, pretty significant price declines over the next um, you know, uh, decade. And it's not just the Chinese that are holding, it's not just China that's holding those, uh, those, those, right. those bonds, it's American retirees or future retirees. Sure. Um, uh, what is it that's, that's keeping the, um, the Chinese for, uh, in that market? Um, there are other places they could go to. Is is it also the security of, or the presumed security of these bonds? Yes. So you know you have uh, China, Japan, and in, in the UK, and between those three, you 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 have um, over half of our, of our debt is basically held by foreigners. Those those being the largest. Traditionally, um, the view was kind of. U.S. debt is safe, and there are some regulations, especially in Japan, in, their, in terms of their pension funds, about being able to locate in, uh, their assets in very kind of safe areas, and U.S. Treasuries qualified. And so you, you have some institutional, but generally speaking, it is, it is the belief that the U.S. Treasuries are safe. China is starting to question that now, mm-hmm. as are other investors. The question becomes... Um, when does it kind of snap? I mean, and what we know from fixed income markets and foreign exchange markets internationally is that things don't just typically gradually change. It's investor sentiment suddenly snaps and people mm-hmm. start to get panic. We saw that in uh, you know uh, Asia, Latin America, and so forth. One reason, obviously, this U.S. may face a different situation is that in the case of like South Korea or Thailand or Argentina and those previous crises, um, it, it was easy just to yank your money and put it elsewhere. When you yank your money from the U.S., not 100% clear where you pull it, where you to. And so um, that may um, create more of a gradualism type story for the, U- for the U.S. But, you know, we're seeing growth in the BRIC countries. We're seeing growth in other countries. And it would not be surprising that you could see not an Asian-style currency crisis of that magnitude, but certainly our own currency crisis that, you know, investors have suddenly get nervous mm-hmm. and um, they, uh, they, they start to pull and we could see yields increase quite a bit and um, rates, uh, prices decline. Would it mean a, uh, an absence of cash for the government to do what it does? It would mean that they would have to pay a much higher interest rate mm-hmm. to float the same debt. And that just makes it um, more difficult for them to continue to roll over the debt. At current yields, they, they, that's one reason why the Treasury can get away with floating so much debt. 
is at, at current yields, um, you know, it's pretty cheap for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan during the 1990s was facing yields of close to 0%. I mean, it's, it's shocking that they, in some sense, weren't floating even more debt than they were, and they were floating quite a bit. But the, the real lesson, though, is not so much the cost of debt, because what Japan during the 1990s showed us is that the J- Japanese government, they were able to float debt uh, for dirt cheap. The real problem is that they diverted a lot of investment mm-hmm. uh, away from new, nimble financial institutions toward trying to prop up very inefficient, old-school financial institutions. We're basically doing the same thing in the United States. We're trying to prop up institutions that were too large to begin with, AIG and lots of the investment banks. Um, They they were just too big to begin with. That's why corporate risk management was never... uh, possible because these 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 companies were way in the inside of this economies of scale region. They were just too big, too, too unwieldy to think about corporate risk management very seriously. And you know, I, somewhat ironically, they actually lost more money um, buying some of the safer um, tranches of like collateralized debt obligations than some of the hedge funds mm-hmm. who bought some of the higher risk stuff. And the reason why is hedge funds were just much more nimble, um, uh, uh, able to take risk management seriously, were able to see the whole picture a lot easier. These old institutions, these investment banks and large insurers like AIG, they're just old, inefficient, and too large. And, and we're trying to prop them up. We're trying to keep them alive. And that's exactly what Japan did. And that's why Japan had a recession that lasted, you know, a good decade. And I, and I see that scenario playing out over the next five years in the United mm-hmm. States. Unless we're willing to allow for a good train wreck, we're, allowed, we're willing to, you know, have some pain in the short run, we're going to have this train wreck screech out over many, many years. And it's, uh, as a result, we'll never clear the tracks very quickly. Now, I mean, I said it before, and I'll say it again. The one nice thing about a good train wreck is you clear the tracks quickly. You start over. Mm-hmm. And we just refuse to let that, that, that happen, which is what Japan did. And clearing the tracks quickly would mean allowing some pain to occur sooner rather than later. Yeah. Saying now that we're going to reduce benefits under Medicare, that we're going to um, make some decisions about what's um, what has efficacy and about what's worth the money that we're going to be that we're spending yeah so there's a couple dimensions one is what's going on in kind of the subprime market and the, the, the banking uh, market they're clearing the tracks quickly basically mm-hmm. means um, creating the most transparent fiscal institution possible and that's and the way that you do that is called bankruptcy <laughs> everybody <laughs> says we want to you know clean up the balance sheets really quickly of these institutions there's there's and we want to do it in a cheap and efficient way. Well, there's a process already out there. It's called bankruptcy. That's exactly what it does. It cleans it up very quickly. And in terms of the entitlement programs, there's no really equivalency of bankruptcy per se. Rather, we have to have this um, long discussion about um, exactly how we're going to scale back benefits. And uh, just because we can't raise taxes enough. And on Social Security, Social Security is the easier, relatively speaking, problem. Again, it's a cash benefit. And if all you did is, uh, is slow the benefit growth toward uh, closer toward inflation, mm-hmm. 
And, and, and that in particular means hitting kind of higher income people a little bit higher in terms of the, their eventual benefits. I wouldn't tax them a lot more, but I would certainly decrease their benefits and make it close to, closer to inflation. You can pretty much fix Social Security. Medicare is, uh, is much harder obviously, because it's a much bigger problem in, in the, the nature of that benefit. So again, there, your choices are either have people pay for a lot of it themselves and therefore be sensitized to this trade-off between benefits and costs, or the government takes a much more draconian approach and basically says, we'll still pay for it, but now we're just going to start rationing who we pay for and what we pay for and things like that. Well, thanks very much. I think this is very helpful. My pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.